This is another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. I'm Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer for Baptist Memorial Healthcare. Hi, everybody. I'm H.F. Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial DeSoto. And hey, everyone. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so incredibly honored to have a very good friend of Baptist, Dr. Gerald Hickson from Vanderbilt. Welcome, Dr. Hickson. Skip, it's an honor to be with uh, this distinguished group. Uh, uh, I am a pediatrician by training, and so many of my comments will be influenced by years of taking care of those under 12 years of age. Uh, gosh, I stumbled into the world of quality and safety through some research and observations that I've made and uh, had the privilege of establishing a center at Vanderbilt focused on patients and professionals and their well-being and high function. Uh, and gosh, uh, then I became the chief quality safety and risk officer at Vanderbilt uh, until I uh, departed that role back uh, on one one twenty, never being aware of what was about to transpire. So uh, that's my background. And yes, uh, I've always been honored to uh, have dialogue and come visit the great facilities that uh, are a part of the Baptist system. Dr. Hickson, once again, thank you very much for being here. And and Jake and I are just very excited to have a a fellow Vandy guy. You know, I did my I did my surgery residency at Vanderbilt back in the '90s, and Jake got, did his fellowship in clinical informatics. So. Uh, it's just really, really good, and and I have very, very fond memories of of my time at Vanderbilt. Um, as somebody who is fairly new in the patient safety and and uh, QI journey, tell us a little bit about your journey. You know, you I think you went to med medical school at Tulane, and then your residency at Vanderbilt, and you you were in were in attending at Vanderbilt. But how did how did you get into quality and patient safety through the years? You know, you, you can call me Jerry throughout this uh, interview. But it's, it's fascinating to me when you ask someone to pause and reflect. How do you get interested? First, I'm going to assert that all of us as professionals okay. uh, need to have a, a, a heart for making medicine kinder and safer. And as a learner, at Charity in New Orleans, as a learner uh, at the Children's Hospital at Vanderbilt, at Nashville General Hospital, you see things. Now, you know, you and I have got plenty to do in any single day, but we often make observations that I've been there before, and gosh, we ought to do better. And so one of the things that I think all of us learn is uh, we need to continue to be observant for what makes it easy to do the right things for those we serve, what makes it challenging uh, in your surgical experience, uh, in Jake's internal medicine experience, we see things where we could have, as I uh, say in Nashville, done more better. Uh, and I think the professional is never satisfied until we uh, are engaged in making the practices that we're a part of safer. And I think it drives us in that direction. Now, we don't all have to do uh, experiments and published papers, but I think in our practices, wherever we live and work, we see things and we never end and we, we are never satisfied with care we deliver until we get it right every time for every patient. 
You know, that's uh, very well said. You know, you were mentioning reflecting a second ago, and and we are recording this about a year into when the pandemic started for uh, us. You know, in in Tennessee, and you sent over you know some slides talking about um, kind of the five five phases of a crisis and how you respond. Um, can you just for the audience walk through what those five phases are and, and how um, y'all at, at Vanderbilt responded uh, to the pandemic or, or really any crisis? You know, it, it's uh, all of us in our practice of medicine will on occasion face the unexpected. So when I was the chief quality and safety officer, we had a tragic event at Vanderbilt where we uh, administered vecuronium instead of Versed uh to a patient that creates crisis and we have to be prepared to address that crisis by taking care of the humans who are there who are uh injured families those who've been provided care we have to then prepare about how we fix our broken systems uh it's the same thing i made a stupid decision back uh this last year and decided I would ride out a hurricane uh, on a beach. Now, I was certain that the hurricane was going to New Orleans and would never immediately turn uh, right and head right to uh, uh, my balcony. But we make those mistakes. But what's fascinating is whether it's a hurricane, an injury that we cause to a patient or a pandemic, there are defined stages. The first is sort of the prep stage. We may have a lot of time knowing that a problem's coming. We may have very little time, but there's always a prep phase. And, you know, I remember uh, uh, being sure that I'd gone to the grocery store and gotten water and peanuts, uh, butter and crackers and all of those sorts of things because we have necessities. COVID's the same way that when we think about our leadership responsibilities, we got to get prepared, which means what are we going to need to deal with something that's unknown? And then the second phase is sort of the early cases phase. So as we began to see our first cases where we confirmed diagnosis of COVID, you know, all that prep stage creates an anxiety. We think we have what we need, and then as the case with uh, the hurricane I experienced, suddenly the rain starts falling and I'm really not sure. And what's fascinated in that work, and we've done this work nationally in, in 200 partner sites, that's where the stress began to show itself among medical team members because we knew this thing was coming. We were sort of bumping elbows now we're beginning to get real cases and we recognize the stakes are pretty high for patients and families but also the reality of this pandemic for us because we know we can get sick and we are concerned that we can take this home to our families now the third phase of the crisis is when we're in the middle of it and the ICUs are overflowing and what plans we put together may not quite be enough. The side of the condo next to mine just blew off. And that was pretty frightening in the middle of that uh, night. And you sure know at that point that maybe the best laid plans are not going to be sufficient enough. And it creates another set of tensions for teams. 
And then what we're in right now is the beginning of a resolution of the crisis. Now the worst may have passed. We may still get a fourth wave, but the worst seems to have passed. We now are familiar with how to ventilate patients as an example appropriately. And now we begin to be worn out or we show the effect of the stress on us as professionals because we've been living this for a year and maybe more. And then the resolution phase, because there these traumatic learning experiences will stay with us for our entire career. So those are the five stages that occur in any crisis. But what I want us to do is be sure that we take those lessons that we've learned because pandemics are going to come again. We thought it was SARS. We thought it was MERS. We thought about Ebola. It will come again. And professionals don't want to have to go down this pathway exactly the same way. So let's take what we've learned in those five stages and apply them as we get ready to crisis. Let's embed them in our day-to-day -day work so that when we do provide the wrong medication to a patient and take someone's life, we also understand that those humans that are a part of our team need to be thought and taken through those stages as well. That, that, that's really interesting, uh, Jerry. Um, when it comes to patient safety, in order for us, and employee safety, uh, in fact, we have to have a way to report and we have to know where we are. And, and having said that, here at Baptist, actually this week we've rolled out a new platform that's replacing our old EOR process for, for capturing near misses and, and, and safety events. And, and as we were starting to roll this out, a lot of references were made to Vanderbilt. For instance, we may have a few thousand EORs across the system in a year. And somebody said that, well, Vanderbilt has maybe upwards of, of 30,000 that are reported. And, and I would be interested as we're rolling out our, our platform, it's called Oscar. As we're rolling that out, how did you guys engage? Number one, how did you engage your employees, the physicians and everybody to, to report and, and, and this, on the uh, the second question I have is is how how do you deal with with thirty thousand safe you know uh, occurrences or, or reported occurrences a year? So, HF it, it, it's 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 a long process and a marathon. Number one, so I want to commend you for putting in a system, and it's really good, and it's really good to begin to share with our colleagues collectively, that this is who we are, that we're never satisfied. It's not about shame and blame. When I trained at Charity Hospital in New Orleans, and this is one of the barriers that we still face. I remember a circumstance in which uh, uh, a uh, one of uh, Charity Hospital's uh, uh, surgical instruments was left in a patient. I happened to be the learner uh, that was standing there trying to stay awake while this long procedure was going on. And, you know, this pediatrician knew that was not for me. I'm glad it is for certain individuals. So uh, congratulations. Uh, but I remember that when the instrument was discovered after the fact, 
obviously the patient had to go back to the OR. And in that environment, we had one of those wonderful morbidity and mortality and blame conferences oh, where yeah. individuals sat around uh, going up to the ceiling, looking down at the chief resident and this learner. And a very great, well-respected uh, physician leader who I will not use his name, but he was sitting up there in the upper left part of that uh, auditorium. I can still see him and he knew all the answers. We were not motivated and we were not real bright. End of case. Nothing about the systems. Yeah. And so the problem is I took that shame and blame that I got from that traumatic learning experience into my practice of medicine. And I dare say most of us have had those experiences and they're destructive. Yes, they and are. So what, one of the huge barriers that we face in getting people to report is the previous experiences that we've had. So you are announcing to your distinguished Baptist colleagues a new day. But you got to live it, which means that those individuals who are responsible for working those stories refer to them in a way that isn't as destructive. I have at Vanderbilt always called them disturbances in the force. I do mm. that intentionally because we don't know whether it's true or not, but of the 30,000 reports we get and we do, and we're getting more every year because they're far more out there than get reported. We want to send a message that these are learning opportunities and we're all human. And as professionals, we're never satisfied until we reach high reliability. So those are the fundamental underpinnings of the reporting system. It's about values. It's about professionalism. It's about high reliability. And these are disturbances in the force that have a team of professionals committed and uh, one of the things that we did is that every one of them gets reviewed and every reporter can be made aware. And we put in a phenomenal initiative three years ago so that if learners put in a report, we are within the day going to give them an opportunity to debrief about their experience with a designated member of that department. So if one of our distinguished uh, internal medicine residents reports an event, the safety officer for that department is gonna say, gosh, Jake, can I meet with you? Can we debrief? It's their choice. But those sorts of steps are required. And then that is what hardwires the culture. Final thing, and, and you may have other clarifying questions. Uh, people have to see action. We put all this stuff in and nothing ever happens. Well, that's a fair criticism. So it's important to be sure that your morbidity and mortality conferences are not M&Ms. They're M, M, and I's. They're morbidity, mortality, and improvement that nursing professionals are as comfortable in the M&Ms as are uh, the surgeons, that the learners have a seat at the table and administrative leaders need to be physically present because they have something to do 
sometimes with the dysfunctional systems you and I have to work in. And so there is nothing about the accountability of sitting there just looking at each other, not blaming, but asking what are we going to do? And then the last part of this that I think has been clever is what we identify as projects that need to be completed in one MM&I continue to show up for all to read for every subsequent MM&I until it gets resolved. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna just suggest to you that you start critically by putting in an easy system to get people stories, their disturbances in the force. Number two, start incrementally. You don't have enough workforce at the moment to give everybody feedback on everything every time, but create a standard approach Periodically, let all the docs, all the nurses know we've gotten this many thousand and we have closed out this many thousand. The big cases, be sure they get rolled into some sort of transparent process of review and track the success and just keep working it and working it and working it. And 20 years from now, you'll be in exactly the right place, maybe. That's great advice, and 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 you just mentioning M and M conferences bring it just stirs up some anxiety in me, and 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 not only at Vanderbilt but anywhere else that that's how they were, and and I just I remember going in and you you know Lester Williams, Dr. Williams was going to be there, and I mean you would just be you you felt like you were going on trial, no, nothing against him or, or nothing that's just the way things were back back then, and. Uh, let me give you a quick example of this when i knew we had reached the right place we had a problem when i took over running quality and safety we had a problem that we were losing uh uh endotracheal tubes from some patients in the surgical icu gosh we're opposed to that and in the presentation at the mmni it was mentioned that the nursing professionals were having a difficulty getting help when they became, they developed concern about the status of the tube. And an unnamed individual stood up, great senior leader, and said, well, this is stupid because the attending's name is at the head of every bed. At which point, four residents stood up spontaneously and said, it is not clear. So the issue is sometimes when we talk about safety, it's who we say we are versus who we really are. And that's that why that partnership with nurses and learners is so critical because sometimes they see uh, the ugly part of Vanderbilt when leaders don't fully see it. And so as the quality chief sitting there in the meeting right then, I said, that's on my watch. So. This is how you build the culture, but you have to get to the point where learners are willing to stand up and say, senior most surgeon, that may not be exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned just a, a little while ago about the importance of having the leadership at these meetings. And I, I know in, in what you said or, or in sent over before, uh, the importance of having leadership um, in a crisis be uh, visible and be on the scene. You know, it, it would have been especially easy during the pandemic for 
all of us, uh, you know, that are in a leadership role to stay in our offices away from the hospital, you know, to reduce the risk uh, for ourselves to, to not get COVID. But I know our, our CEO made a special effort to, to go visit uh, several of the hospitals and be visible on the floors, the COVID units. Um, can you talk about why that is important and, and what that uh, helps uh, accomplish in, in the time of a crisis? In the time of a crisis, we go back to core values. And shame on me for not having mentioned this earlier and to emphasize the point. If we have our core values on the wall, I make those I serve my highest priority. That's the first element of the Vanderbilt credo. Does it apply in a crisis? It's got to apply in a crisis. And so, I think that management of these challenging times begin by renewal verbally. Our core values and one of the things that I was so impressed with our CEO is that every correspondence. From Jeff out to the team started with who we are and ended with who we are and declared we're going to use that as our North Star to make decisions. If we have shortages of equipment or supplies or all of those things. So, Jake, your, your question's just exactly on target. When the crisis comes, especially if the crisis threatens the team members directly, as this one did, the team members want to know, are we thinking about their well-being and safety? And so, one of the great things that a leader does is by written word and spoken word and any other word that can be delivered, they reinforce the core value. They go visit the units. One of the things that I loved about Paul O'Neill, who I got to know who was Secretary of Treasury and ran uh, an aluminum company, Paul would get out there on the floor and walk. And he would ask people, Jake, do you have what you need to do your job? And if there was not sufficient PPE at the moment, Paul wouldn't lie about it. He simply would say, we're working on this, but till then we are going to use our best judgment and our core values to decide we need your support as professionals to help us in this time of crisis. So that's critical. And one other thing I wanna say about leadership during a crisis, they need to get out, ask people, do you have what you need to do your job? But one of the things that we've seen from our national collaboration looking at professionalism, we wondered, are we going to hold each other accountable to our professional standards during a crisis, or do we look the other way? If someone decides that they're going to walk into the hospital in DeSoto and, and simply not uh, sign in appropriately, get their temperature taken. If they're not going to wear their mask, are they going to do, are we going to say, gosh, it's stressful right now. But the question is stressful to whom? The staff that have to work around somebody who's not following appropriate safety instructions or them. And one of the things that all of the leaders affirmed to us, we interviewed 105 CEOs, CMOs, CNOs about what they had found helped them best in the crisis. And one of the things that they always said is continue to expect excellence. Mm. If it's professional a year ago, it's professional now and even more so. 
So I'm going to say that during those times, we need that discipline of what it means to be a professional more than ever. We don't deliver high reliability without two things. We have to have intentionally designed systems. That's a part of leadership's responsibility to get those event reports, those 30,000, and constantly work to make it easier to do the right thing. But then if we build those systems, it has to be partnered the other side of that balance with accountable professionals who will in fact wash their dang hands, will put on their face mask, will sign in for screening and do the best they can given what crisis they face. I mean, all of us on this podcast understand what it's like to be to have the demands to deliver great care in stressful circumstances. It's more important than ever in a crisis. That's really it's, well said. And one of the things you mentioned before with the, the um, you know, event reporting piece was the leaders may think they know, um, you know, since they designed the system, they, they may think they know the, the condition on the floor about how it's being used. And I've discovered, you know, several times of what I what I thought I knew was completely wrong once I, I went out and and worked a shift and used the the EHR that I I helped design, um, and how it's actually going out there. So it, I think that that applies. You know, that's another point as to why it's so important to really get out there is you you learn what actually is occurring with the systems you designed. Jake, yeah, let me commend go, you. Go ahead, please. No, no, go ahead, go ahead, Jerry. Jake, I just want to commend you because uh, I can't tell you how many times I have fixed quality and safety problems at Vanderbilt. And then one of my golfing buddies would have, happen to go through that system and uh, he would come out and say, guys, this is not right. So let me tell you, we, we all need that experience. Yep. It's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned uh, Paul O'Neill because, you know, they, you know, they built their whole organization around safety, but the, the, the great thing was is that a lot of the other metrics that they measured improved and were pulled along with that. And I'd like to know, you know, at, at Vanderbilt, have you, by developing this culture of safety, have you seen, you know, patient satisfaction, HCAP scores? Have you seen physician engagement and employee engagement? Have, have those sort of been dragged along with it? So the answer is absolutely. And the thing I'm most proud of, Tim Geiger is uh, one of our great surgeons uh, at Vandy. And uh, Tim and I uh, worked on a project now of eight years in which uh, we took uh, our surgical infection rates related to colorectal surgery. And gosh, they were gosh awful. I mean, we had SIRs above three, but we had lots of reasons lots of excuses. Our patients were sicker. They were more complex. The distribution of patients with chronic inflammatory bowel disease. I, I heard every excuse in the book. And Tim said we could still do better. And we developed a very effective plan to follow a set of directive principles, which is professional because the professionals developed it, but we agreed that we would follow it and we have reduced those down to our SIRs are down at about 0.4 mm. from three. 
And if you want to do the calculus of how much money that equals in reduced cost to those we serve, it's staggering. So to me, I think that HCAPs and measures of patient satisfaction are important, but the changes that you're going to be able to show with creating a reliable approach to take your findings, to translate them into something else, is going to show you millions of dollars of savings, which then is going to feed back into the satisfaction of the patients and families that are served. The same thing we did with our hand washing. We took our hand washing rates from abominable to awesome. And it is our culture carrier. We wash our hands, yes, to prevent risk to fellow professionals, to families we serve, but it is a declaration of who we are as an organization. And I can tell you alone, we net 3 million a year in terms of reduced infections related to our discipline that we wash our hands every dang time because it is unprofessional to ever enter a room without decontamination, period. Who would argue with that? You can't. Well, you can, because I've heard every argument in the book. <laughs> I'm only going in to give the patient some good news. Can I go in and get? No, it's discipline. And we do those things right. We are professional and we take advantage of those systems that have been created to make it easy. Sure. Dr. Hickson, as we uh, come near in, first of all, I, I could listen to you for hours. So hopefully maybe you'll consider coming back again. But, but I did want to ask you a question. I remember you speaking at one of our annual quality safety symposiums. And if I don't say it exactly right, feel the freedom to correct me. But I, I remember uh, it having an impact on me. And you talked about that when providers uh, maybe didn't demonstrate the values that you would have, I want to say it was a coffee conversation. Uh, can you elaborate a little bit on that as we kind of bring the show uh, uh, to a closure? So, Skip, uh, I appreciate the question. Years ago, I was interested in why a small subset of individuals got way more than their fair share of malpractice claims risk and stumbled into the fact that the observations of patients and families sufficient to identify those high-risk clinicians. And as a pediatrician, I couldn't stand the notion that they weren't aware, that they continued to just think that this is all patients in this field will complain and, and uh, whine. And we trained up a group of peers, not leaders, to knock on their door and share with them a tiered intervention approach beginning with a cup of coffee, which is non-inflammatory, it's respectful. I'm just, HF, giving you a story, and it may even be wrong. I just want you to reflect on it, because as a professional, you will. We then began to collect complaints from staff, and lo and behold, they are even more skewed in their distribution. And the great news is that the somewhere around 35 to 4% of team members who get reports of disrespectful behavior, disrespectful behavior. 82% uh, of them will respond to the intervention strategy and stay responded. So to me, Skip, it's so important because then those behaviors are what get in the way of how we are trying to prevent infection in the OR, 
how we are attempting to uh, reduce COVID transmission because it's respect for humans and it's respect for what we decide our best practices. So when uh, Tim and I were working on uh, uh, dealing with colorectal surgery uh, uh, infection risk, we believe that some of our surgeons might benefit by just pausing. And so they got a cup of coffee and gosh, performance got better. So I'm a great believer in sharing. And now that we've done that with over 100,000 physicians and advanced practice professionals, and now we're doing the same thing with nursing professionals at the bedside, they're all human. And the great news is if a non-judgmental, respected colleague will share. Now, if that doesn't work, you got to have plan B, but we have plan B. What a, what a great, great story. Well, once again, on behalf of Baptist and and our team here, Dr. Lancaster and Dr. Mason, I just want to say thank you, Dr. Hickson. We really would like to have you back in the future and just thank you so much for your time today. Uh, let me express my appreciation to the three of you uh, for your commitments to the patients that are served, the tremendous reach of the Baptist Health System uh, and all the great work that's being done. And I'm glad and excited with you about uh, an enhanced event reporting system. Take full advantage of those observations and gosh, we will continue to push the boundaries forward. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you.